Thank you, volunteers. We appreciate you. Uh, Well, we are in our last week of our Meals with Jesus series uh, in Luke's Gospel. Um, Throughout Luke's Gospel, it's been said that Jesus was either going to a meal, was at a meal, or coming from a meal, and that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Um, This was one of his primary ministry strategies, long, drawn-out meals around the table with all sorts of different people. And I wonder if you're anything like me, if you've been reading through a gospel, the meals just start to jump out at you. He was at meals all the time. And Tim Chester in his book, A Meal with Jesus, says that meals can actually be a reflection of our hearts. And and if meals are a reflection of our hearts, when we look at Jesus at a meal, we see his heart. We see that in our passage today. Just to highlight something that's in your bulletin, I don't think I've mentioned it from up front, so I'll wait till the very last day in our series to do this, but... Um, underneath your neighborhood group discussion questions there's a hospitality challenge and I'm always reluctant to use that word challenge because it can be like an instant shame trigger if you have not done the challenge you just it's like another thing in our world that's telling us that we're just like not enough like here's another thing I failed to do so that is not the intent of the hospitality challenge so zero shame if you have not met the challenge or have didn't even know it was there I just wanted to highlight it for you um So that you could maybe tuck it away as maybe some tracks to run on as you think about, all right, what does it look like to to be hospitable, to gather with people for a meal? Maybe to to give you some structure for how you can think about hosting people, but zero, zero shame if you've not completed the challenge. But the heart behind it is that we would continue to foster community and connection outside of Sunday mornings in our new church. And maybe the best place for that is around a dinner table. All right, with that in mind, um, Luke 24, 36, and 43. You can find that in your bulletin or in a Bible. And as you're turning there, um, a few weeks ago was a New York City Marathon, um, which is arguably one of the most famous marathons in the world. It has a really rich history, um, including a rich history of people cheating in the marathon. Um, I actually read about a man who, just as a hobby, he investigates, he goes over race results and he investigates potential cheaters. Um, in marathons and then he'll like work with the race directors to tell them sort of tip them off on uh, if the race has been compromised Um, one of the more famous stories of cheating in the New York City Marathon was a woman who this was many many years ago she cheated in the race Uh, she ran the first 10 miles which is no small feat Uh, but then she got on the subway and she rode the subway to the finish line which is actually really brilliant Um, and then she crossed the finish line she ran that race so fast it qualified her for an even more famous marathon, the Boston Marathon. So then she goes down and does the Boston Marathon. Down or up? I don't know. She goes to Boston from New York. Geography. And she ends up getting, um, she wins the women's race at Boston. And she runs the third fastest time um, that had ever been clocked for a woman at the Boston Marathon. But they started looking into this. And it appeared that she had not um, gone through various checkpoints in the race, but had sort of just appeared um, at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. So they, they looked into it. And in both cases, her victory was celebrated. I mean, this was really exciting. Until people realized that it was a victory that was just too good to be true. That she faked it in the New York City Marathon in the Boston Marathon. In our passage, uh, we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus through the lens of the disciples... And it's going to look like a victory that is too good to be true. 
A little bit of context going into the passage. Jesus had risen from the grave at this point. A few women who were his followers discovered the empty tomb. The risen Jesus appears to two men who are walking on a road, reveals himself to them. These two men tell the disciples that Jesus, hey, it came true. He really did rise from the dead. And then as our passage begins, the disciples are eating a meal and talking about this news that Jesus, that's been reported that he rose from the dead. So Luke 24, beginning in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, We pray that you would meet us now as we consider it together. You know what's on our hearts and on our minds this morning. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, uh, you you would um, come and meet us in a special way. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, two headings I want to think about this um, under uh, this morning. I want to look at a real resurrection and then talk about the honest responses. So we'll look at a real resurrection and then honest responses. First, a real resurrection. Um, It is not uncommon at all for people to have doubts about the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know where you're coming from this morning. Um, I know many of you that you believe that Jesus really rose from the dead, that you're committed to living as a follower of his. Um, Others of you are in different places, though, Uh, maybe with significant doubts. Uh, Maybe you would say you're really not in a place where you believe any of this. Um, Wherever you're coming from this morning, um, please know that you're welcome here. And we want to honor your questions. Those are good questions. And honor your doubts and take them seriously. And if you are someone who doubts, according to our text, you are in good company. Um, Jesus appears to his disciples in this passage. And these are, these are his boys, all right? Um, his closest followers. They had been with him since the early days of his earthly ministry until almost the very end, until they ended up betraying him. And they had heard him say multiple times that he was going to suffer, be crucified, die, and then rise on the third day. But they still didn't believe it. They still didn't understand. Look at verse 36 in our passage. And they, the disciples, were talking about these things. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. So Jesus appears, he walks in, he greets them, Peace to you. What an amazing thing to say. First words post-resurrection to his disciples. We'll revisit that. But first, there are two things to note about the resurrection that are highlighted both in and around our passage. And the first is this, um, that Jesus' resurrection was physical. It was a physical resurrection. It happened in bodily form. Um, He really shows up physically in this room with the disciples. And they're surprised and they're doubting. And and we're going to look at their response in a moment. But this text gives us a few indicators of the the physicality of his resurrection. And one of those is that he shows him the wounds from the cross. 
Look at verses 39 and 40. He says, See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. In a parallel account in John's Gospel, John highlights the fact that Thomas, referred to sometimes as Doubting Thomas, um, he really needed to see and to touch the wounds uh, from the nails and the cut in his side if he was really going to believe. And that's similar to what we see here. Um, Somehow Jesus' wounds are still visible. Uh, We don't fully know what the risen body of Jesus looked like. We know he was physically real with remaining wounds or scars from the cross, yet also able to walk through walls and appear and disappear. There's a lot of mystery there. But note the kindness of Jesus in this. He meets the disciples on their level and says, yeah, go ahead, touch me, look at me, examine me. I'm really here. Um, he, ju- he doesn't just assume that they're instantly going to get it. Um, it's almost as though he, he knows that it's tough to believe something like this. And so he meets them on their level. So we see the physicality of his resurrection and his wounds from the cross, but also in his eating of a meal. Look at verses 41 and 43. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a, a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And if, if you've been around for any of this series, um, this is so in line with the Jesus that we have, have observed in Luke's gospel. So consistent with who he is. Um, the one who embraced meals as a key ministry strategy is now essentially proving the physicality of his resurrection with a meal. It's so Jesus-like. The resurrection was physical. A few months ago, I had to go get new tires put on my car. And the tire shop that I go to will send a sales associate out with you um, to your vehicle to inspect your tires. And they use this little measuring gauge uh, to measure the amount of remaining tread you have on your tires, which is one of the key indicators as to whether or not they need to be replaced or not. So they walk around your vehicle, they check all four tires, um, and then they walk you back inside the shop. You get inside the shop and there's a sign with a little graphic on the sign. And and it lists sort of like different levels of remaining tread on your tires. And then it will tell you if if you have this much tread in your tire, this is how long it's going to take you to stop in the rain. So it's basically like a safety scale. And as I stood there with the sales associate, he pointed out the, the measurement that he had just taken off of my four tires. And then he pointed to the dangerous section on the sign um, that was right in front of us. And I was instantly stuck. Because I didn't want to buy new tires. Who wants to buy new tires? That's the worst. And I was looking at him knowing that he's going to make money when he sells me tires, which is great. It's a great way to make a living. Um, But I could not deny this physical proof that I needed new tires. I mean, he had me. I could choose to say, all right, no thank you, I'm good, and just risk it. Or I could yield to this physical proof and embrace it. You're right. I give. I need new tires. There's physical proof of the resurrection of Jesus. And it even goes well beyond what's mentioned in our passage. And that could be or just a real hang-up for you. And, and if, if that is the case, know that I would love to get together and hear more of your questions and, and the doubts that you have. Um, there are some great resources to provide sort of a deep dive into the historicity uh, and the facts behind the resurrection of Jesus. 
One is a book by a pastor named Tim Keller called The Reason for God. And let me just share one quote with you from that book that summarizes just how important the resurrection really is to to not just this passage or this account, but to everything that the Bible says. He says, sometimes people approach me and say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christian teaching. I like this part of Christian belief, but I don't think I can accept that part. I usually respond, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. It's central. Everything hangs on it. And Luke's gospel tells us that it was a real, physical, bodily resurrection. And the Apostle Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians 15. That'd be a great chapter to read later this afternoon. 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 3 he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul says he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And the risk and invitation in Paul writing this is that those with doubts can go and ask around. He names some of them specifically. Go ask them. Jesus appeared to them. Jesus' resurrection was physical. But Luke also tells us it was in fulfillment of God's promises. Um, The resurrection did not happen randomly or out of the blue. Leading up to our passage, Luke chapter 9, 22. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Immediately following our passage, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Jesus is telling them that this has been God's plan from the beginning. It was promised back in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. That would be the Old Testament as we know it today. And it was the same thing that he had told them multiple times um, over and over again in his ministry with them. God had promised that this is the way it would go. And he delivers on that promise when Jesus walks into this meal and eats with his disciples. My family and I recently watched the Christmas movie Elf. And if you don't know the premise of Elf, um, which is fine if you don't. Um, The premise is that Will Ferrell's character, Buddy, is on a quest to meet his father, Walter Hobbs. Uh, But for maybe the first third of the movie, uh, Walter refuses to believe that Buddy is his son. And so Buddy goes to great lengths to prove it to Walter. Um, he, He does this simply by calling him dad, just over and over and over again, by telling him how much he loves him. Um, At one point he sings a song to Walter about the fact that Walter is his dad and he recounts the history of exactly how this happened. Um, But ultimately, if you remember, they end up getting a blood test done and it proves to be a match. They really are father and son and now Walter has to deal with this new reality. But Buddy had been telling him and telling him and trying to convince him that this was true 
And finally, Walter embraces it. There was just too much evidence proving it to be true. God had been telling his people time and again that this is how it would go. And it wasn't always crystal clear. But then Jesus comes and tells them in no uncertain terms, here's how this is going to go down. I'll be crucified, die, be buried, rise again on the third day. But they just didn't have ears to hear it. But in walks the real, physical, risen Jesus to their meal and proves that all these promises really are true. What do we learn about Jesus in this? We could say so much. A couple things. Um, He shows grace by appearing to those who had just rejected him before his death. He shows grace by appearing to those who had just rejected him before his death. Phil Riken points this out in his commentary. He says, what makes this so surprising is that only days before they, the disciples, had completely abandoned him at the time of his greatest trial. In cowardly fear, the disciples broke all of their promises to stay with him to the very end. Therefore, as amazing as it is that Jesus rose from the dead, it is equally extraordinary that he went back to his disciples afterwards and that when he did, he went in peace. Jesus would have been fully justified to rebuke his disciples for their desertion. In fact, he would have been fully justified in choosing a completely new set of disciples Instead, Jesus came as their peacemaker. He walks into the meal and says, peace to you. In doing so, he totally absorbs their previous betrayal. He absorbs it, shows them grace, has a meal with them. Second thing we learn about Jesus is that he always keeps his word. He always keeps his word. Always. There is not one promise that God makes in his word that he does not keep. Zero record of God not keeping his promises. He does what he says he will do 100% of the time, including rising from the dead. It's a real resurrection. Let's look at how the disciples reacted. Let's talk about their honest responses. And I wonder if any of these may resonate with you. These honest responses, they, they start with initial misunderstanding. Maybe we could just call it shock. Uh, verses 37 and 38, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? So Jesus walks in again, peace to you. Their response, startled, frightened. They thought they had just seen a ghost. Who or what is this? And of course Jesus knows what's going on inside of them. He knows their hearts. He knows they're troubled and doubting. And so he leans into this misunderstanding and gives them all that physical proof that we just talked about. But take note. Again, Jesus meets them in their misunderstanding. He goes to their level, explains, shows them, is so patient, so gentle with them. And after Jesus meets them in their misunderstanding, their response, it turns to them thinking that this is too good to be true. Look at verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Disbelieved for joy. What a phrase. Uh, Most translations of the English Bible translate that in in a fairly similar way. But the thrust is both of these ideas, disbelief and joy. Uh, Meaning, this is such good news, it's just hard to believe. 
Uh, my first ministry job at a seminary was in college ministry. And part of my responsibility was to lead the efforts in raising the annual budget for this ministry. So fundraising, lots of it. Fundraising meetings, events, phone calls. Major part of my role. As you might imagine, major source of anxiety for me as I was trying to, you know, lead the charge in raising this money. But twice a week we would get uh, our donor statements sent to us from our uh, accounting people. And um, they would list our, you know, most recent donors, total amount that we've received up to this point in the year so we kind of track our progress. And um, I would see these emails come across and it became one of those emails that like, I just felt this tension. I really want to open this email and see what it says. And I don't want to open this email and see what it says. We're just always feeling those things. And I remember opening an email one time. And I think it was on a Friday night or a Saturday morning when I got the report. And I opened the donor statement. I was scanning through the, do- the donations and I saw something highly unusual. Um, a donor who normally gave something like $25 a month had given a one-time gift of, I believe, it was $212,007. Um, a very odd number, but it was a very high number. And I saw this and I instantly thought, this is too good to be true. And my mind start, started racing. So this is a weekend, so I couldn't call the office to confirm whether this was accurate or not. So I was just stuck for a couple days, just like thinking this through. But I go through the weekend just with my mind racing, like, what does this mean if this is true for our ministry? You know, scholarships for students to go to conferences, mission trips, a financial stability for our ministry for a few years relief from just the constant burden of fundraising. And I just let myself imagine over the course of this weekend, what if this is really true? This would be awesome. All the while having some suspicion that it was probably a clerical error. Sure enough, Monday morning I called the office and it was in fact a clerical error, which is a really tough error to make. Um, But it turned out to be too good to be true. It wasn't true. The resurrection of Jesus can seem too good to be true. But the good news is that it's actually true. This really happened. And you might be here thinking, great, great, I believe it. No doubts here, I'm in. Um, But you struggle to connect it with your personal life. When you walk out these doors into real, all those hard things we prayed about earlier, you struggle to connect it there. Um, you feel a disconnect between reading about the disciples disbelieving for joy and the own, your own lack of joy that you experience. Um, our world feels too anxious. Uh, your past seems too messy. Uh, our future, your future seems so unsure. Um, how does the resurrection speak into these hard realities? Let's just take them in turn. All right, our, our world, it just feels so anxious. Listen to this quote from a book called non-anxious presence and see if this resonates with you. It says that the world is undergoing transformation, a chaotic period where most anything can happen and little can be predicted, where yesterday's rule takers become tomorrow's rule makers, but no one follows rules anymore, where competing global visions collide with each other, where remnants of past, present, and future coexist simultaneously. My chest just tightens reading that quote. Um, It feels like we live in a chaotic period where most anything can happen, little can be predicted. I mean, it just feels like nothing is surprising anymore. I don't know if that resonates with you, but that creates this undercurrent of fear and anxiety and weariness and just fatigue that can just be overwhelming because it feels inescapable. Every institution, every organization, every person feels this to some degree. 
but into this collective anxiety that we feel just about everywhere, the risen Jesus tells us that everything really is going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. He conquered sin and death and evil. He is in control. He walked out of the grave and those things which seem so scary or anxiety inducing, he's more powerful than all of it. His resurrection gives us hope and stability and surety in the midst of what we could call global anxiety. All right, what about this? What, what if your, your past just feels too messy? There's a disconnect there. Your past just feels too messy for this. Maybe you've done things in your past that you, that you don't even like to say out loud because it just stirs up the guilt and shame. You just work tirelessly to just suppress it and avoid thinking about it. Um, or maybe you've had things done to you in your past where you just feel kind of beyond repair. You feel too damaged, uh, not worthy. Um, you feel so overwhelmed with guilt and shame that you don't feel like you can be near God or anyone else for that matter. Right, into the messiness of your past, the resurrection of Jesus tells us that we really are forgiven and cleansed. That he fully paid for our sin. There is no remaining guilt or shame that is ours to bear. What about the unknowns of the future? Maybe you just feel like there are too many uncertainties right now. Too many uncertainties about your future as you think about it. You can just barely focus on anything else. Uncertainties about your job. Where am I going to be working next year? Is my job still going to exist? Am I going to be making enough money? Do I need to change jobs? Am I going to have to move because of my job? It feels so uncertain. Maybe it's health related. Your own health. Health of someone you love where you're thinking in months rather than years. Maybe it's within your family. There's just some uncertainty about the future within your family. Your education. Where am I going to go to school? Where am I going to get that degree from? Where are my kids going to go to school? Maybe it's related to your dating life or lack thereof or marriage or lack thereof. Um, the future can just feel so unknown and uncertain. It can almost be paralyzing at times. All right, into our very real unknowns, the resurrection of Jesus means that we know the end of the story. We don't know the details of how we get there. But we know the end of the story. And at the end of the story, Jesus is on his throne. Uh, we will be resurrected in our glorified bodies, fully redeemed, fully healed of all the yucky things we've experienced in this world. And we will be feasting with our King Jesus and his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And there won't be sadness, and there won't be sin, and there won't be death, and there won't be tears. It will only be good and perfect forever. And the resurrection guarantees it. And that is what is on offer for you this morning. To put your faith in the resurrected Jesus. To receive and rest on all that he has done for you so that you might join him at his table. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for good news. Thank you that the resurrection of your son Jesus is true, that it really happened. And Father, thank you that you even meet us in our stumbling belief and doubt.
Father, we cry out that we believe. Would you help our unbelief this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.